welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Allison. And I'm Erica. And before we start, be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying BC the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And don't forget, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail dot com hello erica hello hello back so soon and a bit unexpectedly yeah this is a big episode i think yeah and uh kind of a sad one but a really interesting one i think yeah definitely definitely yeah and before we get into all of that uh we do have a very exciting announcement that there's a new ringo ep out today september 16th when we're recording ep Three, four new tracks, three new tracks, really, one that was released last month. Yeah, the single. The tracks are World Go Round, which is co-written by Steve Lukather and Joseph Williams of Toto. Everyone and Everything, written by Linda Perry, who also produced the track. Let's Be Friends, written by EP co-producer Bruce Sugar and Sam Hollander. And Free Your Soul, written by Sugar and Ringo. Yes, indeed. The Toto is is real on this one. I mean, Steve Lukather is obviously in the All-Stars this go-round. And I think a few years ago, too, when I saw the All-Stars, uh, Steve Lukather was there because I remember Ringo drumming on Africa, and I thought it was the coolest thing I've ever seen. Oh, that must have been amazing. It was great. And not just because I snuck a whole bottle of wine into the Greek theater. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't it work. Was, it was great. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. Oh, man. So, yeah, this is the third EP Ringo has released in the past 18 months, which is crazy. Like, talk about pandemic productivity. And you put them together, and now it's a whole album. So I'm waiting for the box set re-release, Ringo. Let's have oh it. Oh, my God, totally. Well, I like, you know, I read a, uh, a great quote from Ringo today when all the coverage came out and he talks about how by doing it sort of piecemeal he's able to kind of take more time with each song which I think really makes sense especially you know thinking back to like when Ringo got in the business and it was very singles oriented so that that makes sense to me yeah and actually from a PR standpoint it's not bad either because Ringo's EPs keep coming up throughout the year we keep re-listening to them and thinking about them again. I mean, hell, if McCartney 2 came out in three parts, we'd be talking about it a lot more, wouldn't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Totally. I, Paul could totally do a series of EPs. This is kind of mm-hmm. a good idea. He could borrow the Ringo formula. Um, yeah. This one, EP3, very aptly named. Uh, it's I, you know, it's pretty upbeat. The whole thing is very positive, very peace and love, very Ringo, the Ringo we know and love musically. Mm-hmm. Ringo sounds great. I mean... Ringo sounds like he did in the 60s. He does. It's really cool to hear like the exact same voice. And his drumming is obviously still amazing all throughout. Even though he's the lead singer, it's like listen for the drums when you listen to this because it's fantastic. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back because I was listening a lot to his vocals too. Um, and I, can we talk about the album cover? Like it's... I. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about this in the Ringo birthday episode when I went to his birthday shindig here in LA. But my God, the fucking man. He looks fabulous. I really don't get it. Vegetarianism, yoga, and clean living, I guess. Ugh, I can't do any of that. <laughs> not fair. <laughs> it's not fair. Damn it, Ringo. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know if you have a favorite track from this. I think I like the last track, which is For Your Soul. Yeah, 100% agreed. I think it's the most different, I think, of all of them. Yeah. And it's got this guitar solo in the middle that 
kind of Santana-esque. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not to mention, this is the one that was co-written by Ringo of the four songs. So awesome. That's so true. And to me, it was giving me a little sentimental journey. Mm. And it's interesting because as I was listening to it on Spotify, like it kept uh, my Ringo, whatever, the playlist or station or whatever, kept shuffling and hitting you a sentimental journey. And it took me a minute to even like look and see that it was playing for your soul. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, it's just like this. Uh, what is this? A hidden track on sentimental tree. <laughs> I don't know why. Cause it's got like a bossa nova sort of feel to it. It's got a killer sax part. Like, yeah, it's that peace vibe, but in a song form. It's a really good EP. And speaking of Ringo, his tour that was postponed a couple of months ago, last spring due to COVID has resumed. He's got about 24 more dates across the U.S. and a few in Mexico left. So check out RingoStar.com if you're nearby. Get some tickets to the All-Stars. Yeah, I think he's going to play the Greek again. So you know what that means. Bottle of wine. <laughs> snuck it in. That's what it means. <laughs> I think I only got lucky the one time, but it was still, that was fun. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so aside from Ringo, we do we promised you guys on our last episode, which was a little special about the Revolver announcement, that we would talk about the listening parties that we went to with Giles Martin doing the playback. And Erica, you finally went to yours last week. Yes, finally. It took place on the 13th of September in New York City at a record studio. It was gorgeous. We were in a like a movie theater room that had a setup for Dolby Atmos. I saw a lot of Beatle people that I know, a couple of previous podcast guests, um, and of course, Giles, one of our previous podcast guests, gave an amazing presentation. Yeah. What did you think of the Atmos mixes now that you've heard them? They were really, really cool. I mean, for one thing, there's no way to really describe what it's like to be listening to an Atmos mix in a room set up for Atmos. Yeah. You, you can only approximate so much, even with good headphones, what you're getting in a room that really has those speakers. And if you close your eyes, you can feel like like 24-year-old Paul is in the room singing here, there, and everywhere. It's crazy. Your dream. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. 100% yes. Um, yeah, that's so funny because I found myself I found myself doing the same thing. It's like closing my eyes and just listening to like where the audio was placed, like the different parts of each track where they were in the room and sort of just like tilting my head if I heard something to my left or my right. And especially in something like Yellow Submarine with like the middle breakdown with the voices and the speaking parts and the clinking glasses. It's like, where are they in the room, you know? Yeah, that was one of the standouts for me, really, was Yellow Submarine, which is really like a song I kind of skip usually, but listening to the background things and you could really hear like what it was that they were all doing. It was really interesting. And it was also interesting, like how it started with Giles, I think for both of us, before we heard the, the album, Giles came up, he did a presentation, he talked about it. And the first thing that he did was kind of talk over this mix of Taxman that he had, where he narrated how each instrument was taken out, he called it demixing, and then remixed back to create the new mix that now gives us this more modern sound. And it was so interesting to kind of hear the progression. Yeah. You know, when he talks about breaking down, even just the drum parts, I'm like, oh, cool. He took the drums out. That's cool. Like, I didn't know that they had the tapes for that for a revolver. And then he's like, oh, I can just take down the snare. And it was just a snare. That blew my mind. Because I was like, yeah. how did he separate that? <laughs> That's so crazy. Or how did Peter Jackson's team separate that? It's insane. Yeah. 
And he was saying how it was like finding four guys unwrapping their presents was one of the things that he said about the feeling of experiencing the Beatles at this time period, I think, as opposed to experiencing them during Let It Be when everything was falling apart. Yes, I totally agree with that. I love that analogy. Yeah, it was such a privilege. And not only just to hear it in that room, but to hear Giles talking about it. You know, he was talking about hearing his dad's voice on some of these recordings that he had never heard before. You know, and he said something like, for all of you, it's George Martin, but for me, it's my dad. It was really sweet. And then he played Eleanor Rigby, where George Martin was conducting the orchestra. Paul was up in the control room being kind of cheeky. It was really cute. Yeah. Yeah. And I think on that recording in particular, you hear some of the string players, right, discussing the arrangement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that Giles said at our playback was, you know, you realize that, oh, there were real people besides the Beatles and like George Martin and your usual suspects, Jeff Emmerich and those people in the studio. It's like, oh, there are professional musicians that were called in. This was just another gig for them. I was just sort of sitting there in anticipation of hearing my favorite Beatles song, which we talked about a little bit, uh, which is an Andrew Burke can sing. So I was so excited to hear that in that most. Did not disappoint. No, it didn't. The Yellow Submarine demo, of course, needed the same oh more. Oh my God. Which we oh talked about a little bit last time. How did you feel hearing that the first time? I had chills. Yeah. I yeah. was kind of freaking out a little bit. And that was one moment too, when Rob Sheffield, who was sitting next to me, friend of the pod, who's been on the pod before, Love was you, like, almost like vibrating in his seat. He was so like, oh, amazed yeah. by what we were listening to. And I think like we said last week, like Giles had said that this was almost like a Woody Guthrie-esque sort of interpretation mm. of Yellow Submarine. And he was right. Like some of the melody is a little bit off the beat and it's just a different song. 100%. Yeah. I mean, it definitely adds that gravitas to Yellow Submarine that, I mean, who the hell <laughs> would have ever thought of all the tracks on the Revolver, we'd be talking about Yellow Submarine, both the Atmos version, the demo. I mean, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like to hear the rest of this box, you know? Oh, I know. I'm so excited for it. Yeah. A couple of other things that I noticed too, was that there was something about I Want to Tell You where they brought out that dissonant piano and it was so unsettling. Yeah. Oh, totally. Now that you say that, it's bringing back that visceral memory of that. Yeah. Yeah. Like it made me feel nervous almost and reminded me what a great George album this is. Oh my God. Oh my God. Totally. The George cuts on this album are better than any other album, better than Abbey Road. I think I want to tell you, love you too. I mean, love you too. Sounded insane. I, Again, I think I said it last time, but I'm a sucker for those. I, I love Within You Without You. I'm a sucker for the heavily uh, Indian-influenced George songs. And so I was really excited to hear that. Oh, yeah. It felt like you were in the middle of some like religious experience. Oh, yeah. 100%. What a fucking genius arrangement on that. Giles talked a little bit about some of the drum parts kind of standing out. And I that's something that I always notice about his mixes. The drums fall differently for me. I'm not sure if it's because I don't naturally gravitate towards them in a recording. Like we were just talking about the Ringo album and I said, mm-hmm. go back and listen to the drums. But I always like how he places them within the song, within the actual track, because they really do shine in a new way, which is great on tracks like Rain, which mm-hmm. they played for us as well. Rain and Paperback Writer. Which a lot of us feel like that was Ringo's best moment as a drummer yeah. was on Rain. So that was a real like breathtaking moment for me. I feel like Giles really does do a lot with 
with the bass and the drums. And yes, insert the joke here about Paul and Ringo standing over him and saying, more bass, more drums. (laughs) I don't think that's why. But he also, he takes things that are kind of hidden, like counterpoint melodies, or like if there's a flute, a lot of the Paul songs kind of have that. And he brings them out and he leads one instrument into another that he's kind of almost telling a different story with the songs than you heard before because you're hearing things get bigger and smaller and sort of lead in and out. Yeah, totally. To me, that feels like it's a tribute to his dad because he's deconstructing what George Martin did and giving things different emphases to really showcase what a feat of musicianship the arrangement itself is in a lot of these songs. I totally agree with that. I think that's totally logical and it makes sense. I think also on the bass and drum end of things, it's like, talk about two instruments that aren't celebrated enough in any band. It's always the rhythm section, right? So, I mean, okay, yeah, make your jokes about Paul and Ringo, but it's like any band, bass player and the drummer are not usually the heroes, so... I think by making them stand out a little bit more, I think that would be probably a natural decision for most remixes or most bands, like sort of investigating like, hey, like, what is the bass doing right here? Especially when you have somebody like Paul McCartney, who historically played the bass a little bit more like guitar and made Mm -hmm. melody lines, you know, out of the bass lines. It's so interesting that the Beatles had two of the most groundbreaking musicians in Two of the most underrated instruments. I know. And it must be so much fun to like get to work with that and and discover like, oh my God, like Ringo played a little fill right there and it was perfect or, you know, whatever little secrets are hidden in these tracks. Yeah. And I think this whole demixing thing, like part of it, at least Giles has said it for previous ones, is to make it sound like it could have been recorded by a band that is currently, you know, in their 20s this year. And I think giving an emphasis to drums and bass is a much more contemporary sort of feel too. And that goes a long way in giving us that feeling. Yeah. I'm so interested in this concept and, you know, if we're lucky enough to have Giles back on at some point, I'd love to dig into that with him because it's a fascinating concept to me. And he said this at our playback as well. It's like he wanted the Beatles to have a home on like the playlist his kids listen to where it's just, you know, music from all eras Mm. and I, you know, I've had that thought for a few years now. It's like, so what makes the Beatles original recordings not fit into that sonically to my ears? And I don't have a trained ear by any means, but it's like, I mean, I guess I can hear it a little bit if I listen to like a Dua Lipa song against like an original mix of Help or whatever. But it's interesting how that approach sort of influences these decisions. Yeah, I'd love to talk to him more about that. It's such a weird concept because you think like, oh, the Beatles are timeless, but I can definitely hear these songs get freshened up, pun intended. Uh, worst tour, I remember. Love you, Paul, so much. But, I still, but still. A, I still think a toothpaste. Yep, gum, yeah. <laughs> that gum with the squishy thing in the middle. Oh, damn, I love that gum. But yeah, so, it, you know, it, but it's interesting to think about that. It was also interesting to listen to Revolver as an album. I don't think I've listened to Revolver in the order that was intended as a full album. I can't remember the last time I did something like that. So it was a great time, and I'm so excited to keep digging into this era and these songs and to get the rest of this box set. These things come out on Spotify. You know, everybody has access to listen to everything on the day it comes out, which is October 28th, which is a Friday. But I think, too, that there's going to be so much in this box set such a great birthday gift for you erica yes it does happen to come out of my birthday so yeah yeah. thanks paul thanks ringo (laughs) it was just for you i let them know 
Thanks. That's so sweet. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, for your birthday, we're going to have to do something real big. I know, right? You owe me now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we're re-releasing Hard Day's Night. Yay! The Month Underrated <laughs> Beatles album. Yay! <laughs> Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she changes from day to day. I want to tell her that I love her a lot, but I gotta get a belly full of wine. Majesty's a pretty nice girl, someday I'm gonna make a mine, oh yeah, someday I'm gonna make a mine. Well, in light of the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, we really wanted to pay tribute to her and talk about the Beatles and the royal family. Wanted to talk about all the times they met her. Turns out they didn't really meet her that much, but they met the royal family quite a bit. Although she's met Paul many, many, many times. Many times. Many times. <laughs> but they have had a lot of run-ins over the years, so we're going to go through that today. I don't know if we should put a disclaimer up top here, Erica. You know, I consider myself a huge Anglophile. My dream is to live in London someday. I feel very at home when I'm in the UK. And I don't know why. I've always had sort of an affinity for Queen Elizabeth. I know that when I woke up at like 4 a.m. for no reason and saw that she was ill and the kids were kind of rushing to be by her side. I texted you. Yep. <laughs> said, I'm not going to be able to go back to sleep. Like, and, and we spent the morning, the day texting as the news was yeah. breaking. Like analyzing like what the protocol is. Like, oh my God, like the BBC has a black banner yeah. on their website now. What does this mean? Does this mean they know and they're not telling us? Oh. Yeah, exactly. And like analyzing the commentators on CNN and saying, I'm like, oh my God, he just said was. He knows. Yep. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I was drinking coffee out of my Queen Elizabeth Platinum Jubilee mug. I was, you Aww. know, trying to send some good vibes to her. She was ninety six. She did live a very long life. And, you know, I think before we get started on the Beatles thing, I think she's a very complicated historical figure. I think the royal family is very complicated. And I have big feelings on Charles and down the line, which, you know, yeah. a lot of people do, uh, which we won't get into, but I recognize that her passing hits different people very differently. So for some, it's maybe not as sad as for others. There was some real problematic shit in her reign and Mm -hmm. before her reign, and there will probably be problematic shit after her reign. So, you know, I just wanted to start by saying that to recognize that how I feel, which is sad, is kind of a privilege. So Right. And we are not British as much as we would both really wish we were. Please, God, make me British right now. (laughs) So we don't understand all the nuances, but from where we sit, we're very sad. Yes, exactly. Even just as a pop culture figure, because she was really the first royal to kind of be, I think about this today, you know, an icon. I can't imagine a London where you still won't be able to buy like a Queen Elizabeth bobblehead. I'm going to start hoarding some currency because it still has her picture on it until they switch over. Oh my God. I had that same thought. I have a ton of leftover like pounds and I was so excited because I'm like, oh cool, I'm not going to cash these in because... Then I'll have pounds the next time. It's like, well, fuck, I can't spend the pounds now. No. <laughs> I can't spend them. So I've got like 100 pounds that I can't spend. It's so sad. I know. But you're going to get change and it's going to be like King Charles currency. Yeah, I don't want currency. I don't want Charles money. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, Lord. Anyway, well, let's get into a little bit of the Beatles and the Royals. When the Beatles were growing up and when they were born, the reigning monarch was... Elizabeth's father, King George VI, and he reigned from 1936 to 1952. He passed away from cancer in 1952, and the crown, of course, passed to his eldest daughter, Elizabeth. 
then in February of 1952 when she ascended to the throne. So not when she was coronated, but when she was ascending to the throne. John and Ringo would have been 11. Paul would have been nine and George six. And just think about George as a six-year-old. Real cute. Real cute. cute. With those ears. So small. (laughs) So small. And he was blonde, too. He's such a cute little boy. So cute. (sighs) Love him. Um, So then the next year was her coronation, her formal ceremony. And Paul took part in an essay writing competition. Yes. The history of the Beatles and the Queen, especially Paul McCartney, starts literally when she was coronated and Paul was a child. Amazing. So this competition, it was open to all the schools in England. The topic was the monarchy. And Paul wrote an an essay as a 10-year-old and he won his division. So cute. How exciting. That is exciting. And his prize is a book token. And I still don't know what that is. I can't figure it out. Today, I'm looking this up. Book tokens would be another word for gift cards that could be spent in bookshops across the country. So it could have been like a voucher for books. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. That's that's a good prize, I think. (laughs) And yeah, well, Paul was given this by the Lord Mayor of Liverpool. Kind of a big deal. And it's so sweet. His brother, Mike, says that Paul was nervous when he received the award. Can you imagine Paul being nervous? Little 10-year-old Paul. He said that it was his first time getting up in front of a group of people when he accepted the award. So he said his legs were like jelly trying to walk up to the stage. Little Paul had no idea what was in store for him. I'm sure that he made both of his parents very proud because Mary was still alive in 1952. His father was a royalist. It would have made sense that he would have been very excited about the monarchy and passed that on to his sons and didn't hurt that Paul and his friends thought she was hot. Yeah. Yeah. He called her a babe. Mm -hmm. Yep. He said she looked like a film star to them, that they were just very enamored of her. And I'm sure it was something else like to see this glamorous looking young woman become queen all of a sudden. Keep in mind, she was only 25 when she ascended to the throne. Which is unbelievable. Charles is 73, by the way. <laughs> For contrast, yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit older, just a, you know, a couple of years. And it was the first time that anything like this would have been broadcast on television. So there was this whole media aspect, mass media feeling about the coronation too, that probably was just such a new and exciting thing. Yeah. And Paul talks about how you know everybody on their street had finally gotten TVs and he remembers everybody sitting at home watching it together. There's a great Doctor Who episode about this. Just saying. Great. Really? Yeah. One of my favorite. Aliens come and like try to disrupt the coronation of the Queen. The 10th Doctor and Rose are in London for it. It's very cool. Maybe I'd watch that. I like a period piece. Now, I wanted to read this essay. It's not very long. And it's written by a 10-year-old Paul McCartney. (laughs) And I think it's hilarious how much of now Paul McCartney is just kind of in this thing. You can hear him do it with a little head tilt, like we've talked before, like the hand signal, the hand gestures. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so Paul's winning essay goes, On the coronation day of William the Conqueror, senseless Saxon folk gathered round Westminster Abbey to cheer their Norman king as he walked down the aisle. The Normans, thinking this was an insult, turned upon the Saxons, killing all of them. But on the coronation day of our lovely young queen, <laughs> Queen Elizabeth II, no rioting nor killing will take place because present day royalty rules with affection rather than force. 
The crowds outside Buckingham Palace will be greater than they have been for any other coronation. So will the processional route to the Abbey. Preparations are going on all over the world, even in Australia. People care preparing to take that long voyage to England. In London, children for a coronation treat are being given a free seat roadside. For a quarter of a mile, grandstands are being erected for the sake of these lucky children. But the London children are not the only lucky children. For youngsters in other parts of Britain are receiving mugs with a portrait of the Queen engraved on the china. Souvenirs are being made ready for any tourists who come in to see the marvelous spectacle. One of these being the Coronation Loving Cup, which is designed to show both Queen Elizabeth II on the front and Queen Elizabeth I on the back. Another is a goblet which is being made in Edinburgh and has a bubble enclosed in the stem and in fancy letters ER is engraved on the glass. One alteration is that the diamonds, rubies, emeralds and sapphires in the crown are being dismantled, polished and replaced by expert jewelers. But after all this bother, many people will agree with me that it was well worth it. That last line was so Paul. Like all this description is like, yeah, it was worth it. Yeah, I agree. I love how he goes from like mass murder Saxon uh, winning the Conqueror <laughs> times to being like, but that won't happen today in 1953 when Queen Elizabeth takes the throne. Because she's lovely and young. <laughs> yeah, I loved every second of that. I want to know if he still has his coronation cup with her picture engraved in it. I hope so. I hope he kept it. I mean, he is a hoarder. We've talked about this. Yes, so. yes. I bet he has it. I bet he has it. Yeah. I, yeah. I want to know who taught him all this, who told him like, oh, Paul, you know, that they're polishing all the jewels and the crown and they're taking them out and people in Australia are coming up, you know, with a gym. I did gym. That is so cute. He's so adorable. We should post the letter itself because it's, in his adorable little like grammar school perfect handwriting for a 10-year-old, it's so perfect and straight. And you can see a couple of times where he starts sentences with a capital B. It's the same B as in Beatles. Like remember the handwritten with it was B E E on the drum. Head, right. And yeah. it's got that little curly on the bottom. It's yeah. you can see it's the exact same B. It's really cute. That's so cute. Oh my god, I love that. Oh, little Paul. We'll fast forward a couple of years. So, you know, when the Queen has been on the throne for a while and the Beatles are also coming up, by 1963, those guys are pretty popular in Britain. That would be the year of the British Beatlemania. And the Beatles are asked to give a performance at the Royal Command Performance, otherwise known as the Royal Variety Performance. So I didn't know much about it. I knew they had done this. Obviously, we're going to talk about the famous set list and the famous remark that John made on stage. Um, <laughs> but a little bit of background on the Royal Command performance. It started in 1912. And what it is, is basically a charity variety show. It's attended by royals and people who pay, I think, a good deal for a ticket. Because it's mostly superstars on these bills. And they're usually filmed, or they were filmed to air later on TV and different networks would compete to get the rights, kind of like the Olympics, you know, which kind of rotate mm -hmm. through the networks every, every time they happen. The Beatles were announced to perform in 1963. And again, right at the height of British Beatlemania. And it was much like what would be happening in the U S uh, the following February after they played Sullivan show. And when they were announced to play for the Royals, of course there was a huge backlash because fans were like, they sold out to the establishment. And then the journalists, one of them asked Paul at a press junket if they would lose slash alter their accents to be more posh. And oh. Paul said, no, we don't all speak like the BBC. 
I can totally see him doing that. Yeah. But in the, in the setting of that Hard Day's Night interview section. Oh, totally. <laughs> no, we're just good friends. Yeah, we're just good friends. No, we don't speak like the BBC. Uh, and then Derek Taylor talks about how he sent to cover a Beatles show in Southport before the Royal Command performance. And he was sent expressly to get quotes about how their fans felt like they were selling out. And Ringo told him that he, quote unquote, just wanted to play me drums for the Queen Mother. I mean, who wouldn't? The Queen Mum was so adorable. I know. She was so precious. And yeah, yeah, we'll get into it. But the clips of her at this show are precious and adorable. (laughs) So Um, Yeah. So November 4th, 1963, there were hordes of Beatlemaniacs surrounding the Prince of Wales Theatre, which is sort of off of Piccadilly Circus in London. But a couple of days ahead of time, rehearsals were plagued by quote-unquote technical problems. But a lot of that was because the screaming fans could be heard from the outside. Um, and apparently Paul also got his face stuck in the <laughs> curtains, which I God. don't know how, but I love it. <laughs> if that face could talk, this has been through so many things. I know. I was thinking, oh my God, that poor Hoffner is it, still trudging <laughs> around the world now. It's like, I want to retire, dude. <laughs> oh, Paul. Uh, yeah. So 500 policemen were stationed outside to wrangle the thousands of fans. So for that performance, there were two well, three uh, royals in attendance. There was, of course, the Queen Mother, and there was Princess Margaret and her husband, Lord Snowden. And the Queen, unfortunately, could not attend because she was pregnant with Prince Edward, which I'm like, damn, Edward, really ruined that for your mom. Yeah, she would have liked this. I think she would have, yeah. Um, and so there were 19 acts on the bill. Obviously, the Beatles uh, were the most highly anticipated, and they played seventh. But other acts included Marlena Dietrich and Burt Bacharach, Joe Loss and his orchestra, comedians Charlie Drake, Dickie Henderson, and Harry Seckholm, which John would probably be very excited because he was from the Goon Show. There's another pop singer on the act, but he's also, uh, by that time, a big stage actor in the West End named Connie Seal. Oh, we talked about him a little bit in our Johnny Gentle episode. Yeah, I was going to say, he came up briefly, didn't he? Mm Mm-hmm. And then American singers and tap dancers, the Clark Brothers, who I didn't know, so I looked up and they were very fascinating. They were sort of like the last of the great big tap dancing duos. And so oh. that you can see kind of how the vaudeville sort of cross over with the Beatles, which is kind of fascinating to me. But nothing as fascinating as uh, some other acts of the bill, namely dancing pig puppets named Pinky and Perky. Oh, wow. So there's that. Um, and a little bit of foreshadowing here. The comedy duo of Steptoe and Son, who were uh, Wilford Bramble, who we know from Hard Day's Night, Grandfather. Very clean. Very clean. Oh, yes, very clean. Uh, and Harry Corbett. So they were Steptoe and Son. And Rinko said later in the anthology uh, that Marlena Dietrich was also on I Met Her and I remember staring at her legs, which were great, <laughs> <laughs> as she slouched against a chair. I'm a leg man. Look at those pins. Oh, Ringo. Oh, Ringo. We love you. And then according to Neil Aspinall, who was there, he said that everyone in the bill was super nice to the Beatles uh, and they really wanted to just be their friend. So that's great that they weren't sort of looked down upon by these very seasoned veterans that were also on the bill with them. So before the show, a special passageway had to be built between the theater and the hotel next door just to get the Beatles to the theater without being seen or mobbed. For comparison, Marlene Dietrich could walk through the stage door didn't even get recognized. Didn't get bothered. Nobody cared. <laughs> no wonder she was like slumping against a chair. Right. Yeah. At least her legs still look good. Yeah, I know. I'm a leg man. It's funny though that how A Hard Day's Night really replicated a lot of the things that happened in this event and also happened in the Ed Sullivan show. Like Beatlemania kind of replicated itself over and over again. 
yes, and we're actually going to see that very clearly via the Royal Variety performance as well. And one reporter said, never in all my years of observing Royal Variety audiences have I known this usually starch, quote unquote, on their best behavior audience, unbend so quickly and completely. I love that word to describe it, unbend. Mm, Yeah. So nice. So the Beatles performed four songs, From Me to You, She Loves You, Till There Was You, and Twist and Shout. Before Till There Was You, Paul quipped that this is a song by our favorite American group, Sophie Tucker, which, you know, we've all heard that a million times. It's on the anthology, but I never realized what that meant until I was researching this. And he's actually making a joke about Sophie Tucker's size, which which I don't like. No, no, why? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Apparently she joked about it because she, you know, she was like a bigger singer, like, you know, whatever. And yeah, he made it. I I never knew that. I don't... (laughs) Oh, no. No. Nope. Bad Paul. Don't make a joke about this. Do not comment on women's bodies. God. It was a different time. That's disappointing. I I never thought it would be about that. I know. I didn't. I was like, naively growing up, I was like, oh, who's this group, Sophie Tucker? (laughs) (laughs) And then I, you know, I sort of like figured out that it was a singer, but then I didn't realize what that comment meant. Uh. I know. Very sad. Um... But that's not the most notable comment from this whole thing. No. So before oh, before Twist and Shout, John made a now infamous comment on stage. He later said he was fantastically nervous, but he still wanted to do something a little cheeky to scare Brian and to, uh, you know, to kind of stir shit up that he liked to do. So let's play a little clip of his line. Thank you. For our last number, I'd like to ask your help. But the people in the cheaper seats, clap your hands. <laughs> and the rest of you, if you just rattle your jewelry. So apparently he wanted to say, rattle your fucking jewelry. And he was telling people, he was like going around telling people that. He's like, haha, Brian, I'm going to say, rattle your fucking jewelry. Uh, but he didn't. So I think it's Brian, he must have been having a fit backstage <laughs> waiting for this to happen. Side note. There's also a story about Brian this night because he apparently didn't have his suit or it was left somewhere. He like just was running out of time and couldn't get it. And so that was like the last a last moment thing where he got it delivered to him at the theater. And just before the show started, he sat next to his parents in the audience. But it was like a very stressful night for him just all the way around. Oh, my God. I would imagine that Brian would have been a big royalist and would have been so excited about this night and to not have his suit ready would have been just devastating. Oh, my God. Totally. I know. And his parents were there in the audience. Like, it was all happening for him. And then you got John being like, oh, Brian, guess what I'm going to (laughs) say? I can't even do it. (laughs) They can't fucking work. (laughs) Oh, God. He, He had to put up with so much. So, like I mentioned, everything except for Me To You is included on Anthology 1. I have, like, maybe it's like a Mandela effect, but I feel like that's, I've heard that version, maybe somewhere. I'm sure there's a bootleg with all four on it. So the Royal Variety performance uh, actually aired a week later on November 10th, and it was pretty much the equivalent of the Beatles and Ed Sullivan. Like, Beatlemania was pretty high at that point in Britain, but this sort of took it to the next level where everybody could see them. Um, It became ITV's most viewed show of all time. 21.2 million people watched it. Think about that in 1963. That's huge. That's massive. Not everybody had a TV. I know. And still they got that kind of viewership. Yeah. And then shortly after, and it's credited in part to this airing of the performance, 
the Beatles at number one for the fourth time in 63 with uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand, which obviously <laughs> propelled them then to the U.S. And the press coverage was also bonkers. So the week after the RVP, we'll call it, uh, mm-hmm. the Daily Express ran five front page stories. And the Daily Mail just stopped using Beatles in their headlines altogether. And instead, they developed like a little graphic of their little mop top heads. And they just put that on whenever they're talking about the Beatles. That's amazing. I want to see that. I know. I want that. Yeah. We need to find that. Even if it means going all the way to the British Library and looking through the microfiche, we need God to find it. forbid we do that. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> threatening this. I found two kind of interesting things about this. The first is that just like with the Ed Sullivan show, they had their share of like older generation dissenters who were annoyed that the Beatles were being invited to a high profile royal event. And then also at a foreshadowing of Revolver right now, when the Beatles were asked why they thought they were included in this, they said that it was because of all the taxes they'd given yeah. Her Majesty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did George say that? Because that would make sense. Of course George said that. <laughs> <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I love it. I love his... We, we talked about it last time, but just George's saltiness towards money is the best. <laughs> uh, so how did the Royals enjoy or not this performance well they loved it you know by all accounts the queen mother absolutely loved the performance the footage of her is so sweet she's grinning from ear to ear she's having time of her life and she reportedly said it was quote unquote one of the best shows i've seen the beatles are most intriguing they are they are your majesty they are yes um, and Princess Margaret, who was, you know, like a party girl. She was younger. She kind of hung around the rock and roll set sometimes. And she was reported to be leaning forward during the performance and clapping on the offbeat. Bless her. <laughs> <laughs> she tried. She tried. She tried. Now, I was wondering if there was any account of Charles being there or of his reaction, because um, he was a Beatles fan. Even as early as 1963, when he was 15 years old, he had a Beatles replica guitar made for him, delivered to the palace, and kind of had a bit of a Beatles mop top. Oh my God. Why was, yeah, he should have gone. You would think why wasn't he, he would love to be there. Yeah. Maybe he, trying to think what day of the week was, no, I think it was like a Sunday. I don't think he would have had school. I mean, I would have skipped school if I were Charles, but. Yeah. That's a good question. Weird. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, Erica, you dug up a really cool newspaper clipping of Charles and his quote-unquote mop top, which is kind of longer, looks a little shaggier. Yeah, I think it kind of looked like he got swept up in the wind and he got caught in a bit of a, <laughs> a bad picture. Or he just didn't brush his hair very well. Yeah, he tried. There was definitely a little bit of like royal fangirling over Charles and his love of the Beatles. He was like a full-blown teen mag star. I mean, this is coming from someone where, look, I will confess, I had pictures of Prince William in my locker in junior high school. I <laughs> I cut off the back cover of like a Time special when Princess Diana died. And it was like this full, huge picture of William. And I was in love with it. And Aww. then the kid who had the locker next to me, like... For no reason, ripped it out of my locker and it ripped the corner, and I'll never forget it. What an asshole! <laughs> I know. I, I didn't, what the fuck, dude? Yeah. So I think they were trying to make Charles into like a little teen heartthrob as well. I don't think it worked as well as it did with William when I was growing up. No, I mean I'm a hairy girl myself, but I totally feel you. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Um, but yeah, he was he was everywhere. So, but we'll uh, we'll post this picture of Charles and his <laughs> quote-unquote mop top so you guys can judge for yourselves. 
So after the performance, the Beatles were introduced to both the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret. And the Queen Mother asked Paul where the Beatles were playing next, to which she replied, Slough. And she said, oh, that's near us. Since Slough isn't too far from Windsor Castle. I only know Slough from the British office because that's where their company, Warnham Hog, was based in. Yeah. Well, also, for you guys who love the office like we do, the address for Dunder Mifflin is Slough Avenue. Yes. Yes, I love that. Uh, I know. I love that they were going to Slough. Um, so, yeah, after that, the Beatles were apparently asked every single year to perform again at the Royal Variety Performance, but they turned them down. Um, and John says in the anthology that they said, stuff it. <laughs> he said the show's a bad gig anyway. Everybody's very nervous and uptight. Nobody, nobody performs well. Oof. John had feelings about the monarchy. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yep. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> Uh, first, we're going to talk a little bit, just very quickly, about a funny story involving the monarchy and the Beatles. So this also involves our friend Princess Margaret at the Hard Day's Night premiere in 1964. Leading up to the movie, reporters were act- asking the Beatles who was going to be in their movie, and George joked, oh, we're trying to get the queen. She sells. Give yeah. her the money, George. <laughs> and she's a babe. And she's a babe, yeah, from Paul, I'm sure. Princess Margaret and the royals were invited to the premiere. Nobody thought that Princess Margaret would come, let alone come to the after party, but they invited her anyway. And so she did come to the premiere and she said they had dinner plans, but they would stop by the after party for a drink. And so apparently during the pre-dinner drinks portion of the party, George asked director Walter Shenson when they could eat. And Shenson said they couldn't until Princess Margaret left. And that's just royal protocol. You can't eat or drink in front of a royal. Maybe it's only senior royals. I'm not sure. Unless they start the eating and drinking. Obviously, they're all having drinks. That was all fine. But you couldn't really eat in front of Princess Margaret. Um, But... Princess Margaret and Lord Snowden were staying longer and longer and longer and just like having fun and talking to people and mingling and, you know, partying. And George, <laughs> I love this so much. George walks over to Princess Margaret and says, Mom, we're starved. And Walter says, We can't eat until you leave. Oh, shit. <laughs> I died. When I read that, I was crying laughing. Oh, I love George. It. George, that is so like you and I love it. That's so like an I don't like your tie moment with George Martin. Oh, like he totally. always comes out with it. I love that so much. But and so did Princess Margaret. She thought it was hilarious. And she said, Come on, Tony, we're just in the way. And they left. <laughs> <laughs> and presumably George got his dinner. So Amazing. I, know, I love that story. Well, for all the taxes they pay, they better get a dinner out of this thing. Exactly. Oh my gosh, so funny. Well, we're gonna move on to a bit very big time when all four Beatles met the Queen in 1965. You all know where we're going with this. It's when they got their mm-hmm. MBEs, girls. MBE. MBE. So June 11, 1965, it was announced that the Beatles would be receiving MBE medals as they were wrapping up production on Help, the film and the album. Obviously, as we previously discussed, they were generating millions of pounds for the British economy. Somehow, despite all that, some people thought that they were only receiving the MBEs because then Prime Minister Harold Wilson, um, who also nominated them to receive the medals, he was a parliamentary delegate for Heighton Merseyside, so hometown boy right there, they thought he wanted to just gain favor with younger voters, even though the voting age is only 21. So it wasn't like, you know, 16-year-olds could vote for him. The teenage crowd really isn't a demographic he's trying to reach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, other people were so offended they turned in their MBEs, and these were mostly military recipients. 
and John would later say, you know, they got them for killing people. We got ours for entertaining. I'd say we deserve ours more. Ringo, ever the diplomat in all of this, he said, I have no problem with it. None of us had any problems with it in the beginning. We all thought it was really thrilling. Yeah. Um, When the announcement was made that they would be receiving the medals, Paul and Jane were on holiday in Portugal, and Brian asked them to return early to be in Britain for the announcement. And that night, Paul and Brian were interviewed. That's interesting that it was Paul and Brian and it wasn't John. I wonder if John was already uneasy about it. He could have been. I don't know. I think Paul is more of a safe bet always. And also, you know, we've talked about this a few times on some of our Brian episodes, but I always feel like Brian was trying to involve Paul more, you know, on the business side or trying to like cozy up to him in some ways. So maybe he just sort of saw him as more of like spokesperson. In these yeah. kinds of, I mean, John's such a wild card. You know, rattle your fucking jewelry. Does that ring a bell? After that, maybe he's like, we're never letting them near. (laughs) John just has to stay away from this royal stuff. He's quiet, (laughs) silent. No. Exactly. John, you wait (laughs) in the corner. So I never, I mean, you know, we've all known that the Beatles got MBEs, but I didn't really know what an MBE was. So here's what it is, people. So it stands for the member of the most excellent order of the British Empire. And these honors and awards are announced and awarded just twice a year to both civilians and military personnel for, quote unquote, public recognition of their merit, service or bravery. There is a committee that decides on the list of people to be honored. So for the Beatles example, the PM uh, nominated them to the committee, the committee voted, and then that list goes to the prime minister and the king or the queen to approve. So the Order of the British Empire was started in 1917 by King George V. That would be the Queen's grandfather. And this was during World War I. And it was created to recognize those that helped with the war effort, but who weren't on the front lines. And then later, they also started being given to civilians. And so there are four classes of the order. I'm sorry if you guys think this is boring. This is very fascinating to me. The lowest rank of the order is the MBE, which is what the Beatles got, the member of the most excellent order of the British Empire. Above that, we have the OBE, which we'll talk about in a second the officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire. And I find myself putting on a posh inflection to say this. Mm-hmm. Um, the CBE, commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire, and the GBE, KBE, or DBE, which is the knight or the dame, the knight or, or dame of, you guessed it, the most excellent order of the British Empire. Most excellent. Most excellent. So the MBE is awarded for an outstanding achievement or service to the community, which has had a long-term significant impact. I would say earning millions of pounds for your country, that would do it. Yeah, yeah. Putting Liverpool on the map, making England a cultural hotspot. Yeah, they did, they did a few things. Fix that box. So the Beatles received their MBEs on October 26, 1965. They arrived at Buckingham Palace in John's Rolls-Royce, pre-psychedelic paint job. 4,000 fans were outside the gates. And if you guys look up on YouTube, you can see the fans sort of climbing the gates. They get really high, too. They climb the light posts. It's pretty scary. And if you've ever been to Buckingham Palace, you know those gates are hella high. So I don't know how they got that high. And they're kind of spiked in the top, too. They're not, like, comfortable to climb on. Pretty amazing they got that high. You know, the Beatles were on the other side. It's like those stories of like a mother lifting a car when her kid's in it. Like you just find a way to do it. It's pure adrenaline, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. So according to Paul, uh, before the ceremony, an equerry, which is just sort of like an usher kind of or a butler, took them aside and explained the protocol. And he said, approach Her Majesty like this and never turn your back on her. Don't talk to her unless she talks to you. 
John Laver did in 1967. He said that there was this guardsman telling us how many steps, how to curtsy we meet the queen. Although men don't curtsy, so that's suspicious. Um, mm. You know, left foot forward. Every time he was reading out the names and he got to Ringo Starr, he kept cracking up. We knew <laughs> in our hearts she was just some woman, yet we are going to go through with it. We agreed to it. Interesting that it was Ringo Starr and not Richard Starkey. I feel like he was Sir Richard Starkey when he got his knighthood. It really seems like it was Ringo Starr. Maybe they just wanted to name it as the Beatles were named in popular culture. They just wanted to say those names. Could be. Could mm. be. Well, the most famous story, of course, uh, the one that's been repeated a million times, is that the four Beatles smoked a joint in the bathroom at Buckingham <laughs> Palace. And John said, we were giggling like crazy because we just smoked a joint in the loose of Buckingham Palace. We were so nervous. But George later was like, nah, didn't happen. <laughs> I don't believe George because I've seen Help and this was right after Help. Well, also, I think if you look at the pictures of the Beatles, like taken outside of Buckingham Palace like <laughs> with their medals, they look pretty yeah. stoned. Yeah. <laughs> um, but George has said like they just smoked a cigarette. I mean, sure, like a jazz cigarette. A, j- <laughs> a jazz cigarette. I love it. Oh, yeah, because they were in a very long line to get their medals. There were 189 people receiving honors that day, including six who were knighted. They had a pretty long wait. I guess they could have smoked a joint and not been missed for a while. So the ceremony grew closer. It took place at 11 a.m. in the Great Throne Room. And they all seemed pretty impressed, actually, with the honor and the ceremony, at least at that time. How it rolled out was the Lord Chamberlain, who is Lord Kobold, read each of their names out loud. Then each beetle stepped forward and bowed. And then Paul later said at a press conference held later that day at the Savile Hotel Bar, the names were read in alphabetical order, with Ringo's being last, and Star being their cue to step forward. So very specifically, Star so Ringo said that uh, the Queen said to him, it's a pleasure to present you with this. And he said, thank you. And then John in 1970 said, we had nothing to say. <laughs> the Queen was planted on a big thing. She said something like, ooh, ah, blah, blah. We didn't quite understand. John. <laughs> oh, John, we ah. get it. You're too cool for this. We get it. Ah. <laughs> uh, but what the source that I like the most is that press conference at the Savile Hotel because it happened that day. So I feel like we can reliably trust what they said somebody asked what queen had said to them and john said she said to me have you been working hard recently and i couldn't think of what we've been doing which totally i would have drawn a huge blank i've been like i don't know especially um, if i was stoned out of my gourd uh, yeah right more, more <laughs> evidence he said i couldn't think of what we've been doing so i said no we've been having a holiday when actually we've been recording <laughs> <laughs> I love, well, to be fair, I think they had just been to the Bahamas. Yeah, help was kind of a wild ride. Yeah, yeah. Um, Paul said, and she said to me, have you been together long? And I said, yes, many years. And Ringo said, 40 years. And she laughed. <laughs> Ringo, you jokester. And George said uh, that she said, it's a pleasure giving it to you. But that's what she said to everybody. And she put John's on first. And John said, I must have looked shattered. <laughs> <laughs> And then Ringo said, she said, uh, did you start it all? And I said, no, they did. And pointed to the other guys. I joined last. I'm the little fellow. Aw. I bet she enjoyed that. A break from the stuffiness. She liked the Beatles. So she, she was probably just as excited to meet them as some people are to meet the Queen. Totally. So as they were being awarded their medals, they shook hands with the Queen. She spoke to them, as we just heard. And uh, she pinned the medals to their jacket lapels. Then they stepped back in line. They bowed again. And that was pretty much it. But I mean, for four kids from Liverpool growing up when they did in post-war sort of grayness and in a town that really needed to be repaired and 
a lot of desperation around them. It must have been pretty astounding to like be in Buckingham Palace face with the Queen, no matter sort of how you felt politically about her. Yeah. In fact, John said in 1970, he said, although we didn't believe in the royal, fam- royal family, you can't help but being impressed when you're in the palace, when you know you're standing in front of the Queen. It was like in a dream. It was beautiful. People were playing music. I was looking at the ceiling. Not bad, the ceiling. It was historical. <laughs> it was like being in a museum. I like that. I think I can, you know, it's relatable. It's like being somewhere like mind blowing. It's like, oh, the ceiling. Oh, my God. It's all pretty surreal. I don't know about although we didn't believe in the royal family, because I think Paul never wavered from his belief in the royal family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the we, you know, we talk about the royal we. I think John's uh, using that liberally here. So what did the Beatles think of the Queen? Well, Paul, and this is going to crack us all up. So he says in the anthology, she was sweet. I think she seemed a bit mumsy to us because we were young Aww. boys and she was a bit older. Um, okay, Paul, you have said how much you fancied her when you were when she was, you know, ascending to the throne. We already know he called her a babe. Mumsy, please. And Ringo said, the Queen was great. Obviously, I'm a big Queen fan now. Uh, it was obvious <laughs> she was doing her best to make everyone feel relaxed and not nervous. John in 1970 said she is much nicer than she is in the photos. But John. at the John, again, with this mumsy stuff at the press conference later that day, again, she said, or he said, um, you know, she was just like a mum to us. She was so warm and sweet. She really put us at ease. You know, I think it's less about their age than about that, like that divide that they have between basically people born in 1940 or later and people born before. There just seems to be a whole different way of being. That's true. About the slightly older generation, like the Brian generation. True. And, you know, I guess I could see it as, you know, she's the queen. She is the matriarch of the country. So I guess I can, you know, give them a little room to say that. But mumsy is such a bad word. Yeah. I mean, maybe she was like very maternal feeling. She did have a lot of children by then. That's true. That's true. I could see that. So aside from the day they're presented, the Beatles also wore their MBE medals in the cover of Sgt. Pepper. And then a fun fact that I like, and I actually didn't know this, but I've always heard various, usually it's Paul kind of takes credit for this, of saying that MBE stood for Mr. Brian Epstein because he didn't receive one, which is a crock of shit, number one, he should have gotten an MBE. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, actually it's Princess Margaret. She said it. Our girl Maggie over here, she said... I love Margaret. She is like the star of the story. She would have been so much fun to hang out with. I'm 100% sure of that. Um, She said she was in Birmingham randomly opening a new office at the Birmingham Post and Mail. And she just saw a headline, an article about the Beatles getting their MBEs. And she said that the glaring omission of Brian must have meant that MBE stands for Mr. Brian Epstein. And I'm like, Margaret, you love Brian too? I love that. We should have been best friends. Oh, so cute. I know. So it's like, you know, Paul, again, in interviews, loves to say that. But I I wonder if he got that from Princess Margaret or, I mean, it's not a hard thing to think of because those are his mm-hmm. initials, but I just love that. We can't talk about the MBEs, though, without talking about what John did in 1969. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so after he got his MBE in 65, he gave it to Aunt Mimi who put it on her mantle like any proud auntie would do. You know, it's reported, and, you know, we've talked about this a little bit throughout the episode. Um, It's reported that he was uneasy accepting it at first. You know, that he said that Brian pretty much made him accept it. But I, I don't know, I feel like his comments from that day in 1965 and around that time up until the late 60s really don't reflect that. I think it's possible he had a change of heart. 
especially mm-hmm. since he started becoming more politically awakened, especially when he met Yoko and sort of had his eyes open to a lot of things in the world that could have possibly changed his feelings toward the monarchy and yeah yeah that kind of thing if he was uncomfortable it might have just been like he kind of had a chip on his shoulder because it's royalty and he felt uncomfortable being you know from liverpool and being working class and maybe he just felt like like i'd feel weird about it too like you know it's it's just a very different world that they're in and i don't think that john john was never one to really you know indulge people in pretenses so he probably thought the whole thing was ridiculous but maybe not for a political reason at the time and then he kind of retconned that back when you know he was with yoko and he had a a a real like stake to put in the ground about why he didn't want it yeah sure and like let's not forget the end of the 60s is pretty turbulent for john you know his marriage ended cynthia and then he Mm -hmm. met and married yoko and they of course face a huge flurry of racism and criticism and backlash and just like the worst stuff. Also, you know, they had their bed in their honeymoon bed in and their protests for peace and all of that criticized in the press and also from Beatles fans and just the whole world was sort of turning against them. Not to mention their drug bust. You know, that was a huge thing that happened to them as well. So on November 25th, 1969, he drives himself to Mimi's house in Bournemouth and he retrieved his medal from off her mantle and he returns to the Apple offices on Savile Row, and he types a letter to the Queen on bag production stationery. This is just after he and Yoko had started the company. And the letter read, Your Majesty, I am returning my MBE as a protest against Britain's involvement in the Nigeria Biafra thing, against our support of America and Vietnam, and against cold turkey slipping down the charts. With love, <laughs> John Lennon of Bag. John Lennon of Bag. John Lennon of Bag. Just dissecting this note a little bit. Obviously, we all know what cold turkey is. Um, we all know what Vietnam is. But I didn't know what Nigeria Biafra thing meant. It was a civil war in Biafra, which was at the time an unrecognized state that has seceded from Nigeria. So it only existed from 1967 to, to 1970, which is when this sort of conflict happened. And so Nigeria invaded and attacked Biafra. And the most disturbing part of it was it caused widespread famine among the citizens. Mm. And Britain was supporting Nigeria in the conflict. The summer of 1969 was particularly brutal. So it makes sense why that would have been on John's mind. Because Mm. photos and footage of starving children were being circulated with headlines Mm. of genocide and that kind of thing. And there were tons of like public outrage and and protests. Um, There's photos of Jeannie Shrimpton protesting in Piccadilly Circus. You know, people were very involved in this atrocity that was being committed. The war actually ended the following year in 1970, and Biafra was incorporated back into Nigeria. But it was a huge thing, you know, and obviously it was really upsetting to everybody. And it made sense why John would include that as well, since it was Britain backing it. So he later, but he later told BBC for that he'd been mulling it over, giving back his MBE and protests of these things for about two years, and that uh, some of the Vietnam conflict events had sort of spurred that as well. Um, He didn't tell the Beatles that he was going to return his medal, and he Hmm. later regretted chucking in the remark about cold turkey uh, because he felt it cheapened the whole thing, which I can see that. It comes off as as a little, like, bitter. Mm -hmm. And it makes it sound like a joke. Yeah, totally, totally. So he types his letter up and he sends it with his medal off with his chauffeur, Les Anthony, to deliver 
personally to Buckingham Palace. He also sent a copy of the letter to Prime Minister Harold Wilson and the Secretary of the Central Chancery, which is the Lord Chamberlain's office within the royal household, the department that kind of handles the MBEs. I got to say that, I mean, I love you, John, but there is a very large lack of self-awareness if you're protesting the monarchy by sending the medal off with your personal chauffeur. <laughs> true. Oh uh, that's very true. Uh, yeah, I'm sure in his roles, <laughs> this psychedelic roles just pulls on up. Right. <laughs> yeah. Just stick, it, stick it to the man, John. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, John was legally blind and probably would have just rammed right into Buckingham Palace had he tried to drive it. True. It would have been a matter of national security, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Poor John. (laughs) Oh, bless. Um, So his medal was placed in a royal vault for 40 years before it was unearthed in 2009. So it was found finally in the central chancery of the Orders of Knighthood at St. James Palace. And it was still in its original box uh, that it came in from the Queen. And the letter from John was still with it. So I don't even know if she ever saw it. I don't know. <laughs> or who saw it. I have a feeling they just sort of like got it from Les Anthony and stuck it somewhere. We're like, all right, whatever. And I thought it was interesting. You can refuse or denounce your honors. But John returning his medal did absolutely nothing for his title. Because unless the king or queen annuls the honor because of a misdemeanor or some other reason that you can't be an MBE anymore. You're still an MBE. So John, for the rest of his life, was John Lennon MBE. So ultimately, the returning of his medal was just symbolic. The title is fairly symbolic, too, so it doesn't really matter. (laughs) Yeah, and there's something to be said, too, about, you know, how publicized it was at the time. So I think the act of doing it kind of got what John was looking for, which is attention to the reasons why. I'm not saying he ended the Vietnam conflict or ended the war in Nigeria and Biafra, but he did sort of draw attention to the causes by that letter and by returning his MBE. Yeah, it's certainly more of a court of public opinion thing than anything official relating to the monarchy. Yeah, for sure. So that was the Beatles, and that was kind of the Beatles as a group. That was the end of their specific relations with the monarchy. It was certainly the end of anything that John ever had to do with the monarchy. But the monarchy and the Beatles persisted for many years to this day. Paul was knighted on March 11th, 1997. So what's that mean to be knighted? Uh, According to the British government, knighthood and the female equivalent damehood is an award given by the queen to an individual for a major long-term contribution in any activity, usually at a national or international level. So he kind of just climbed up in the ranks. He was the MBE, and now he's going to the highest knighthood chivalrous rank that you can attain, which is the knight commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire. He could be sir. He could put KBE after his name. If he was a woman, he would be the Dame Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, much like Judy Dench, and would be D.B. Paul was one of the first musicians ever knighted, second only to Cliff Richard, who is obviously a huge sensation in England, though he didn't quite make the splash here that he did there. Still huge. Yeah, still, really. He was certainly one of the first, but he was not the last. Since then, many others have been knighted, including Elton John, Mick Jagger, Bono. Ringo, of course, was knighted in 2018. David Bowie was offered a knightship, but he turned it down. And it was actually very funny that Mick Jagger was 
the knighting part was done by Charles because the queen didn't want to do it because of his anti-establishment views. <laughs> she draws a line <laughs> at McJagger. She's like, nope, I'm not doing it. I'm not, not putting this sword on him. No, 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 no. Oh, I love it. I loved it. Now in my mind they had beef and I, I like it. Maybe she would have personally taken away John's MBE if he had been anti-establishment enough if it ever had gotten to her. Who knows? Oh, that's true. She she would have annulled it if it would have gotten bad. Hmm. But they just put it in a closet and yeah. she never really heard about it. John, you should have been more <laughs> radical. Seriously. Maybe he should have driven his car into Buckingham Palace <laughs> and he would have gotten the attention he deserved. Huge statement. Just throws his MBE out the window. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Uh, so Paul was knighted in 1997. He was accompanied by Mary, Stella, and James. Linda was sick at the time. She died 13 months later, though Paul had said in the media that they only got three invites and that's who got the, like they pulled sticks or something and that's who got to pick. Aww. Like he had some, so some, yeah, some other excuse, but I think yeah. it was just, it was more that Linda was ill. Yeah. Um, so in 2019, Paul talked about the experience to Stephen Colbert. Side note, I was there. Um, oh, I forgot you were there. That's so amazing. <laughs> I was there. Um, so he said in that, that day, he said, it's quite something you can imagine. And what you have to do is you're not allowed to turn your back on her. So you walk in, you're not turning your back on her for one second. You stand in front of her, you walk down there and then there she is the queen of the whole world. And she's got this sword. Anyway, you've got a little red cushion and you've been told what to do. So you kneel down on the cushion and she takes the sword and she does it on either side of your shoulder. And then she says, arise, Sir Paul. So you're an ordinary guy. And then she does that. You're magically just Sir Paul. It's like Harry Potter. But the thing is, the sword is special. The sword belonged to Ethelred the Unready. It's an old sword. Okay, so let's unpack. So Paul used an analogy for Harry Potter. Also, he knows who the sword belonged to. So he's basically still that 10-year-old who knows everything about the monarchy. Yes, and the queen is Hagrid, and she's saying, you're a wizard, Harry. You're a wizard, Harry. <laughs> you're a knight, Paul. <laughs> so good. Back in 1997, and this was around the anthology time, too, so he was hanging out with George and Ringo a good amount. Um, when he told George and Ringo he'd be knighted, they started calling him Your Holiness. Oh, shit. I love that. <laughs> I can totally imagine them both like totally trolling him. (laughs) (laughs) But despite that, he dedicated his knighthood to his three former bandmates. Very nice. Mm. So these are two contemporaneous statements when he got the knighthood. On the day he accepted the award, he said, this is one of the best days of my life. Today is fantastic. There is a blue sky and it's springtime. My mom and dad would have been extremely proud and perhaps they are. I would never have dreamed of this day. If we had thought that when we had started off in Liverpool, it would have been laughed at as a complete joke. Proud to be British. A wonderful day. It's a long way from a little terrace in Liverpool. Oh, that it is. So he's still very much considering his parents, thinking about how proud they would be, you know, kind of a thread that runs through his life. And then another thing that he said in the summer 1997 edition of Club Sandwich, he said, the best thing about it is that when me and Linda are sitting alone on holiday watching the sunset, I can turn to her and say, hey, you're a lady. It's a giggle because you get to make your girl a lady. Although she was always one to me anyway. Aw, I always forget that she was lady. She's Lady Linda McCartney then. Yeah. Uh-huh. Aw, I love that. 
See, this is what I love about Paul. He's bringing it all back to like his family, like his parents and his little terrace in Liverpool and and Linda. You know what I mean? Like he's seeing all of the important things in the small ways about this stuff rather than any kind of like national recognition or, you know, being Harry Potter at that point. But he really, you know, he's noticing, you know, what was important to him. And I think in light of the fact that Linda passed away about a year later, that was a really poignant thing to say. Yeah. I mean, not to take this episode full circle, but it's sort of like the freshen up analogy. The little piece of gum <laughs> with the little oh my God. little uh, jelly center. It's like that oh, little no, jelly center of Paul. Oh, it's no, just you didn't. A little boy <laughs> Liverpool. <laughs> That's his little <laughs> jelly center inside his piece of gum. Oh my God. I, I don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, if I had a microphone, I do have a microphone, but I'm not going to drop it because I would ruin the sound. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> You're welcome. You win. Thank you. you. Win. I won the podcast. Finally. <laughs> oh, I took me four years and I finally did it. And speaking of winning, in 2018, <laughs> Paul wins again. Oh, Paul. Damn. He receives the Companion of Honor. It's basically a Lifetime Achievement Award. It's a special award granted to those who have made a major contribution to the art, science, medicine, or government lasting over a long period of time. That he has done. Mm-hmm. So again, he accepted the honor, Nancy by his side, wearing a suit designed by Stella. And he said, I see this as a huge honor for me and my family. And I think of how proud my Liverpool mom and dad would have been to see oh, this. Oh, still with the mom and dad. So cute. I know. It's so cute. So that's most of Paul's history with the Queen. He did he did perform for her quite a few more times. But those were, those were I think, his entire list of awards, starting from when he was 10 years old up to 2018. <laughs> so the number crazy. of awards surrounding him and the Queen. I love it. <laughs> now to the other Beatles. George was offered the OBE in 2000, and he turned it down. He didn't say why, but the rumor was that he thought he should be knighted like Paul and that OBE is a lower order of chivalry, and he didn't like it. Olivia explained it a little bit more diplomatically in the film Living in the Material World. She said, George had maximum amount of diversion in life. Towards the end of his life, I'd say, oh, they'd want to give you this award thing. And he said, I don't want it. Tell them to get another monkey. I'd say, yeah, but you know, it's a really nice one. You should have this. And he'd say, well, if you want it so bad, you go and get it. I'm not going. I'm not doing that anymore because it's just a big diversion. He really did draw the line. And I really admired him for that. I love that. I mean, you know, to put it in the time frame too, it's like that was a year before George sadly passed away. So I'm, yeah. I'm sure at that point in his life, he's like, I don't, I'm not doing anything I don't want to do. Yeah. And he, he really did eschew a lot of material possessions and things like that. So he probably just, probably part of him didn't care. Yeah. I could totally see him not caring about that. Yeah. Less so I don't, I can't see him being it, like George could be pretty petty, but that's what we love about him. But I don't see him being that petty where it's like, oh, I should be netted like all. No, I, I think Olivia was probably more correct in what she said. Yeah. He didn't. Yeah. Tell them to get another monkey. <laughs> that sounds like George. It sure does. And now, last but not least, Ringo. He was knighted in 2018, 21 years after Paul's knighthood. And he said he was a little shaky to be there on his own without the other Beatles this time. Aww. He said, it means a lot, actually. It means recognition for the things we've done. I was really pleased to accept this. When he was asked if he wanted to be known as Sir Ringo, he said, I don't know yet. It's new, and I don't know how you use it properly. (laughs) But he did promise to wear it that day at breakfast. Aww. 
<laughs> you, know, you can just call your friend Sir Paul and he could uh, tell you about how to use the Sir. Actually, he did have dinner with Paul the night before. Oh, that's so cute. To I love get that. pointers on it. I love it too. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> Sir Ringo. So I wanted to end this with two stories about Paul. They're going to be about Paul. Shocked. Because, yeah, he wrote a really touching letter in memoriam to the queen last week. It's on his website. He posted on Instagram. And he had said that he met with the queen a total of nine times over his lifetime, including a performance at Royal Albert Hall in 1982. And the queen's golden and diamond jubilees were played in 2002 and 2012. So of these stories that, you know, a lot of stories have been coming out about the queen and various people that kind of highlight her sense of humor and who she was. And I think these shed some light not only on Paul's interactions with her, but on who the queen was outside of her official duties. So I really like these two stories. The first one was sometime in the early 90s, Paul was asked to perform for the queen's birthday. And when he met her, he started to say to her, I'm honored to be here tonight, your majesty. I'm going to play some music for you. And the queen says, I'm sorry, I can't stay. It's five to eight and I have to go watch Twin Peaks. (laughs) Relatable content before streaming happens. You know, you got to know maybe they were just about to like reveal who killed Laura Palmer. Like big deals here. Yeah. The queen, she liked her TV. But she also apparently rescheduled meetings around the finale of Downton Abbey, too. She was obsessed with Downton Abbey, which I love. That's relatable content for me. That's so meta. I know. I love it. <laughs> apparently she'd seen The Crown, too. Really? Oh, my God. That's hilarious. She fucking loved TV, and I support it, because I do, too. <laughs> she loved TV, and she had, like, four drinks every day. Uh, yeah, her dirty martini, right? Was it dirty or was it with a twist? I forget. I can't remember exactly what she had, but she had like a number of like scheduled drinks throughout her day. Fucking icon. Love her. Maybe she had a macarita. I hope she experienced that once. Oh, yeah. You know, Paul, why didn't you, when you got your companion of honor. Roll up on with a bar cart. Little sh- yeah, a little <laughs> shaker full of macaritas <laughs> for her majesty. They seem to have gotten along very well. Uh, yes, I'm sure they did. <laughs> So the second story was about their final meeting in 2018 when Paul received the Companion of Honor Medal. He recalled in this note that he wrote last week, I shook her hand, leaned in and said, we've got to stop meeting like this, to which she giggled slightly and got on with the ceremony. I did wonder if I was a bit too cheeky after saying this. After all, this was the queen. But I have a feeling she didn't mind. Oh, that's so cute. She didn't. She'd love, no. She had a good sense of humor, I think. I think so, too. And so, you know, it's an end of an era. It's an incredible era that was so firmly tied up with the Beatles in so many ways. It's hard to grasp the passage of time like this. I think that's what makes Her Majesty's passing very difficult for a lot of people, and myself included. I've been thinking about it a lot. Why it has such a gravitas when, you know, we're not, like we said, we're not British, but it just feels very big. I mean, it's a huge historical moment, obviously. Yeah. And funny enough, though, that even though she was 96, I heard more than one pe- person I talked to about this was like, she seemed so young. Like She did. Sure. You no? Know? Because yeah. her mother lived to 103. I know. Uh, my friends in England that, who I've been talking to this past week were like, I'm sure she's, you know, we were sure she's going to live to 100 at least. You know, it wasn't that far yeah. off. And she had been performing royal duties 48 hours before she died. Right. So this was such a shock. Yeah, it's very shocking and 
very sad, but it was fun. I don't know about you, Erica, but I had a really good time with this episode, looking back on her time with the Beatles. I did too. I did yeah. too. It's kind of fun just to relive them as like young royals, especially Princess Margaret. Yeah. Oh, again, would love to party with her. Yeah. <laughs> she seemed like so much fun. R.I.P. Queen Elizabeth. Yes. God save the king. I guess. end this episode as we always end our episodes with our favorite Beatles things of the week. There are so many things to be obsessed with right now. Oh Alice, what are you obsessed with? So many things. There's a lot going on, guys, in Beatles world. It, it seems like new stuff every day. Um, but mine, I am so excited, so happy. I am almost speechless. It's kind of where I am with my favorite Beatles thing, which is, of course, the Brian Epstein statue that is now yes! up in Liverpool. I'm so excited. It's been in the works for five years, um, and it was finally unveiled on August 27th during International Beetle Week, which we have to go to next year, dude. Next, next, next year, year in Liverpool. 100%. We'll see you there. Book yes. your tickets. Let's do this. Um, yes. And so uh, this year marked the 55th anniversary of Brian's death, which uh, it was unveiled on that day. Um it was funded via the Brian Epstein Legacy Project's uh, crowdfunding campaign, and funds were matched uh, from Liverpool's uh, Business Improvement District nonprofit, which is kind of interesting. I've never heard of a yeah. BID being nonprofit, but leave it to Liverpool to make it happen. And the sculptor is, of course, Andy Edwards, who also did the Beatles statues at Pierhead that are absolutely stunning, and the beloved Silla Black statue on Matthew Street. Aww. And I, we need to get him on the pod. He would be yeah, so interesting to talk to. Definitely. Yeah. So I am so excited. I've seen pictures of people posing with the statue. And so one, one hand is in a fist, sort of like decidedly walking from the Whitechapel NEMS office up to the cavern. And that's sort of how he's positioned, too. He's right in front of what used to be the NEMS store slash, you know, his offices. And Aww. then turning that corner up to Matthew Street. Um, and then the other one is the other hand is sort of open and I've seen people posing, like holding his hand and that's all I want to do. I just want to hold his hand. <sighs> I'm so excited. Oh, I, yeah. You have to. You dying have to. to go, dying to see Brian. I don't know if I, how I'm going to like make it without just like losing my shit. No, I think you're going to lose your shit. Yeah, I, I think, think this I is going to happen. And just accept fun. it. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm accepting it. I'm here for it. I'm ready. Like, yeah. I need that. It's going to be cathartic for me. And I'm really, it's cheaper than therapy. Well, actually it's not because plane tickets, but <laughs> better than therapy. I need to just hold Brian's hand and then I'll just stay there. I'll just handcuff myself to that statue. And that's where I will live now. I love it. It's a good plan. Anyway, so yeah. there's really nothing else for me to be obsessed with because this is all I can think about. The statue is beautiful. And two things I noticed about the statue that I specifically love is that one, he's wearing a cravat <gasps> and it's a really nice polka dot cravat. Yes. It's the polka dot cravat that he loved so much in life. I love that detail. And then secondly, um, our friend Terry Crane, who does the NEMS memorabilia stuff, he does the book about that. He showed the inside of his jacket is carved with some of the initials of the bigger donors to make the project happen. Yes, I love that. And so... Back a million years ago when they started this project, I remember one of the rewards for the crowdfunding campaign was you could actually like help sculpt it. Like you could go to wow. Liverpool and they would like give you clay or whatever and you could like help sculpt it. So 
up, but because of COVID, they couldn't really have that done. So what um, Andy Edwards did was instead like carve the name, the initials of those top donors into the jacket, which I'm so pissed about because I would have donated more money. <laughs> but <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, but alas, I am broke by broke, and um, I guess I'll just have to take a chisel with me when I go and live at the Brian Epstein statue. If you're going to be there anyway, you I might yeah, as well. might as well just like chisel my own name into that jacket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that just makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, it is beautiful. I am, I cannot wait to see it in person. It is just magnificent. Yeah, I would be very interested to talk to Andy Edwards. I mean, he has sculpted some of the biggest legends in Liverpool. Yeah, I think, don't quote me on this, but there's also a Billy Fury statue at the Albert Dock. I no almost, yeah, I almost wonder if he did that one. I have not researched this and I could pull it up, but let's like speculate on it. That makes it more interesting. It's something to ask him if we have him exactly. in the pot. Exactly. I would not be surprised. It's a beautiful statue too. Oh. Yeah. So that is that is occupying my mind. Erica, what what are you obsessed with? Well, I'm obsessed with so many things this week. I mean, I'm still not over the revolver listening party. So this is kind of an offshoot of that, that when I was there, one of the people that I ran into was Ken Womack, who was on our show at the very beginning, like yeah. episode two or three, I think, because he wrote a series of books about George Martin. Uh, he's now working on a project where he is writing a biography of my friend and yours, Mal Evans, we the Mal. erstwhile hammer hitter from the Get Back movies. Everyone knows him now. <laughs> hammer hitter. I love it. <laughs> Roadie, bouncer, best friend to the Beatles. Looks like all around wonderful guys. So the biography of Mal Evans is coming out in 2023. And Mal's archives, which he wrote like thousands of pages of, of journaling, and he's got so many things that's coming out the year after. So Ken was telling me a little bit about this project, and he gave me this postcard that has a self-portrait of Mal on it. And we have to post this because it's yes. like the cutest thing I've ever seen. Oh, I haven't seen it. I'd love to see that. He's got his big glasses on, and he's got like this little red heart for a mouth. It's just adorable. Aww. It's the most adorable I, like I've put it up on my wall. It's just the cutest thing. So anyway, hopefully we'll have Ken on the, to talk about it when the Mal stuff comes out. That's not for a year or so, but I'm just thinking about Mal a lot lately and how he's just kind of like one of us and yeah. learning his more about his story, I think is going to be really, really exciting. So I'm looking forward to all that. For sure. We'll have to do a big Mal episode and have Ken on and talk about all things Mal. He deserves it. He was such an unsung yeah. hero. Yeah. And I asked Ken, like, is there anything have as you've been going through all of these archives, because he's also been spending a lot of time with Mal's son and, you know, like trying to go in depth as much as he can with it. And he's, I said, is there anything like anything surprising about Mal? And he basically said, like, no, he was that guy that you see. He's actually like that genuine guy. And I, I just love that because, you know, not everybody is. And Mal was just who he was. Oh, see, that's the thing about the Beatles in our, in our circle, though. I feel like that was a very common thread because they didn't suffer fools. And I don't think they like fake people. They like people they can mm -hmm. trust. And so I think what you see with like Mal and Neil Aspinall and Brian and everybody kind of really connected to them. I think that was just sort of, you know, they were who they were. And that's so yeah. nice to know, though, that Mal was just like that, that affable Beatles BFF, you know, that we see him as. Yeah, that's where we are. But, you know, still... Still also really obsessing about the absolute privilege to have gone to that revolver listening party. Oh, yeah. Always. Because, Gosh, wow. so much fun. <laughs> it was just transcendent. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, such a great week. Such a great time to be Beatles fans, guys. 
Seriously, who would have thought that 56 years after Revolver, this is a great time to be a Beatles fan? Like, I still can't get over that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We are hashtag blessed, everybody. (laughs) We seriously are. Yes. Well, as always, thank you so much for listening to Because the Beatles. And please follow the show on Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now. Um, And please give us a rating review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. And remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye. Bye.